Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, February 21st. Have you heard about or been involved with the controversy at the New York Times over its coverage of transgender people and transgender issues? More than 1,000 people is the number that I'm seeing who are or who have been Times staffers or contributors published an open letter to the paper's associate managing editor for Standards last week expressing what they called serious concerns about editorial bias in the newspaper's reporting on transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. The letter said plenty of reporters at the Times cover trans issues fairly, but their work is eclipsed by what one journalist has calculated as over 15,000 words of front-page Times coverage in the last eight months alone debating the propriety of medical care for trans children. The letter then goes into detail about some of the coverage that it says is enabling far-right hate groups to cite stories in the Times as evidence for anti-trans legislation and arguments in court cases, like around the law in Arkansas that maybe you've heard of that could make it a felony punishable by up to um, 10 years in prison to offer any gender-affirming treatment to minors under 18. The Times' response to the letter fueled another round of outrage for not responding substantively to the criticism, but just saying basically that the protest letter goes against the paper's ethics policy for Times writers for aligning themselves with outside advocacy groups and attacking one another's journalism publicly or publicly supporting such attacks. There was a companion letter submitted simultaneously by advocacy groups, including the Human Rights Campaign and GLAAD and others. And further fueling the fire, on the day after the letter to the Times was received, the Times went ahead with its plan to publish an op-ed piece by columnist Pamela Paul defending J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter books author, whom many trans people have come to see as against their full humanity. The column argues that it was not transphobic of Rowling, to assert the right to spaces for biological women only, such as domestic abuse shelters and sex-segregated prisons, that on a person's legal gender status, self-declared gender identity is insufficient, or has expressed skepticism about phrases like people who menstruate in reference to biological women and other related positions that Rowling has taken. That column being published on the day after the letter was submitted, plus no uh, substantive response to the letter, as I said, added fuel to the fire. So that is some background on this internal crisis of confidence at the Times, and we will do a newsmaker interview now with two of the signatories of the letter. They are Joe Livingstone, a freelance journalist and critic who writes mostly about film and a New York Times contributor, They helped to write the letter to the Times management as an organizer at nytletter.com. And Sabrina Imbler, staff writer at Defector, a worker-owned site and former science journalism fellow for the Times in 2021 and 2022, they had some articles there you couldn't forget the names of once you saw them, like 
Are You Really So Different from the Blue Sea Blob? Did you read that one? And Finding a Retirement Home for 466 Frozen Flatworm Fragments. Joe and Sabrina, thanks very much for coming on for this. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for having us, Brian. Thank you, Brian. I want to acknowledge this didn't come out of the blue based on just the two articles cited by name in the letter. This has been building for a while, I gather. So would you like to describe kind of the arc of how this developed and culminated with the letter last week? Of course. Um, Thanks for the question. So, yes, this has been rumbling for a rather a long time among a lot of journalists uh, working for The Times and not, um, who have been aware of this disproportionate level of coverage around what seemed to be uh, moral panic talking points from the New York Times um, that have become alarmingly intertwined um, with bills that are sort of now coming out in um, states across America. So what we did, um, or a group of people did, was to take a lot of advice saying, you know, what would be the best way to try to reach the management of the Times? How can we start this conversation? How can we just get it going? We received a lot of advice saying, essentially, write a letter, keep it respectful, use lots and lots of hard data. (laughs) Don't refer to the opinion page because that stuff's opinion. You know, talk about history. Phrase this as strongly as you can, but be courteous. That's exactly what we did. We addressed it to we addressed a complaint, very specifically a complaint um, to somebody whose job it is to field complaints. Um, we have 1,191 people who have written or contributed to the New York Times signing on by now. Before the day was over, we had received a, um, you know, as you mentioned, a very dismissive response. So it has not begun the conversation that we hope to have um, with Times Management, but it's begun a completely different one that has become a lot, uh, you know, hotter and more fierce as, as the week has gone on. Sabrina, would would you like to tell listeners in some more detail in what ways you think the Times content has been biased against trans people or reasons that you decided to sign the letter? Yeah, I mean, so I worked at the New York Times for about a year as a fellow, and it's a really lonely place to work as a trans person. Um, I use they, them pronouns, and this was kind of a learning curve for a lot of my coworkers, um, you know, many of whom practiced a lot and apologized when they messed up and, you know, eventually got it right. But it was frustrating, you know, when I would be misgendered by someone I've been working with for for six months. Um, You know, it was never malicious, but it didn't feel good. And it felt reflective of the fact that there are very few trans people in the newsroom. Um, And that also sort of came to a head when I was working on a couple of stories about how hard it is for many trans youth to access healthcare, um, which I felt was an important story for the Science and Health Desk, especially when laws are being announced in so many states seeking to ban youth access to transition care outright. But I was told by the masthead that my stories on this subject were simply too long. And I was asked to trim key details that helped Um, to show the scope of the problem, in my view. And I felt demoralized when I kept seeing these long front page stories that, you know, question if too many trans kids are getting gender affirming health care. And it felt like a double standard to me. Joe, there's there's a pushback article uh, to the letter that I imagine you've seen in New York Magazine by Jonathan Chait. Since the Times hasn't responded substantively to the letter, maybe this is the most prominent thing in print. 
So let me run a few of his arguments by you and give you a chance to respond. Broadly summarizing, he says the practice within the medical community on how much to assess a minor before administering medical care has changed a lot in recent years and is a source of major debate within the field. So reporting on that change and that debate is legitimate. Does he have a point there in any way to you? I think that that is a a kind of an observation. I think that investigating the answer to, um, you know, his implied question is fair if it is counterbalanced um, by accurate reporting to suggest the opposite. And when his, the kind of paranoid reading that I think lurks behind his observation, which is that this is a bad thing, that we should not want this for our children, that we should try to do something about society because this might happen to my child without me knowing. Um, It's a very familiar kind of rhetoric. I think in the letter we lay out very clearly, I think, you know, the the history of um, the way that it's been acceptable to frame, um, you know, hateful rhetoric around LGBTQ plus people under the guise of, oh, we're just asking questions. Oh, we're just worried. Oh, we're just afraid. You know, this is not the same thing as responsible reporting. You know, Jonathan Chait, I hear, is not edited at New York Magazine. I don't know where he's getting his sourcing. So, you know, we worked very, very, very hard on our letter, was definitely, um, you know, much more fulsomely checked than Chait's was. So it almost seems, it almost seems unfair to have to respond to him, to be frank. Really? Do you, so do you dispute the premise, and I guess the premise of the article in question in the Times, that there is significant change in the medical community and there is significant debate in the medical community? I can't speak for doctors. Um, my partner is um, a medical professional in the field of um, trans medicine. And um, uh, I would say at base, um, the core guidelines given to doctors for how to treat cisgender as well as transgender people with medications such as puberty blockers, which is at the center of a lot of this debate, it's standard. Um, And what's not standard is something like the bill that South Dakota governor signed into law last Monday, banning both surgical and non-surgical gender affirming treatments for transgender minors in that state. Now, Non-surgical treatments includes puberty blocking medication. This is, um, again, a standard treatment for a variety of conditions. And um, yeah. Um, And Sabrina, do you want to take a stab as a science journalist on what a responsible article or coverage of that topic might look like in the Times or anywhere else as you see it, um, if you accept the premise that there is a lot of debate in the medical community, and that that's largely about um, permanent changes that would occur from uh, that medical intervention and when it's appropriate. I guess I would say that debates are, you know, constantly happening in a lot of different medical fields, and this debate affects such a small fraction of the population in general. And I think 
in my eyes, what I see as the larger story is the vast number of trans kids and trans youth that are not able to access this kind of care for financial reasons, for reasons of lacking parental support, um, you know, of this lack of gender clinics that, you know, you can drive to. Um, and again, I think it's just about, as Joe is saying, counterbalancing this coverage with what I see as the more important story of the lack of access to this care. Joe and Sabrina, let me put a question to you that has come in on Twitter. Listener writes, can you please ask if they feel the elimination of the public editor position in 2017 has led to the issue of coverage bias we're seeing today? Does either one of you want to take a stab at that? I'd love to. Um, I don't feel I can speak to whether or not the public editor, you know, were they still do exist, um, could have intervened in the coverage. But the lack of a public editor is what has caused the disaster, um, as I see it, that has unfolded for the time since we sent our letter to them. So, um, Michelle, the caller, very um, astutely mentioned the GLAAD letter. So that's G-L-A-A-D, the advocacy group, who delivered a letter directly after we did to the New York Times. We emailed our letter. They delivered theirs by hand. Now, within the day, right, as I said, we received um, a response to our letter that was framed as a response to the GLAAD letter. Um, this is the same <laughs> conflation that was repeated by um, the in the memo that was sent threatening retaliation to workers for having signed our letter, um, which specifically said, how dare you uh, take you know, how dare you join forces with an advocacy group in order to criticize um, our coverage. Now, this is inaccurate. Um, <laughs> we haven't yet seen even an acknowledgement of our letters um, existence, which is signed 100% by journalists. This is not a piece of advocacy, right? This is an independent letter written to somebody whose job it is to take it. And I don't think ordinarily that the New York Times would reject out of hand correspondence from say, now, Hilton Als, Rebecca Solnit, Cynthia Nixon. These are not people who the New York Times would ordinarily reject out of hand. And so and just just to be clear, those are some of the signatories to your letter, names that people might know who signed the letter. Go ahead. Sorry. Not at all. Absolutely. Those are just some of the luminaries that I'm so proud and moved flock to support us. You know, when we ask people for support, um, it's such a critical mass of critical thinkers that um, I do think that if there was somebody who um, was good at their job and had a job at the Times who's um, who was going to deal with this, they would have done um, much, much better. So, yes. Sabrina, do you want to address that too, the Times trying to draw a line around not criticizing your colleagues publicly and not joining arms as they see it with advocacy groups whose purpose might not be to support journalistic complexity where it exists, but simply to push coverage in the direction of its interests, like interest groups do uh, on any side of any issue, uh, I imagine the Times would say. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I don't believe there is a black and white line between advocacy and journalism. And I think it's easier to think that you can be, you know, a totally objective, impartial observer if the rights of your community are not being targeted by state governments across the U.S. And I think that the Times' policy of, you know, um, barring individuals from participating in sort of 
public opinion and public protest. I think it's ridiculous to think I have to be a journalist before I am a person in the world whose perspective is shaped by my experiences and who is also capable of reporting a story fairly. And I think we lose credibility as journalists if we stay silent and pretend we don't care. And as Joe pointed out, you know, this letter is directed to the standards editor who sets the standards of um, journalism at the Times. And it's issued as as a complaint, you know, from from journalists to journalists. One more call, and I am delighted to be able to take a call from former Brian Lehrer Show producer, M in Brooklyn. M, uh, I hope that's okay that I outed you as somebody who worked <laughs> on the show. <laughs> Thank you so yes, much for calling uh, in. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Oh, my gosh. I'm really happy this conversation is happening. Um, and yeah, it's just sad. Um, I was I wanted to reference there was a piece in the defector called "How many trans people does the New York Times believe there should be?" Um, which I think kind of says it all. Um, in the coverage of the Times, you know, I've noticed there seems to be that through line of like, oh, the alarming rise in the number of trans people seeking treatment or whatever. And I just, you know, can you imagine that being said about? you know, gays and lesbians, like the the alarming number, uh, you know, the alarming increase of gay people. And it's like, we're just like 100 years in the past in terms of how we talk about trans people and gender nonconforming people. And thank you. And Joe, that was a reference in the letter, too, that um, the Times really did report like that on the increasing number of gay and lesbian people coming out Decades ago, I think the example cited was from the 1960s, uh, but the way that was reported then, and maybe they've changed on that particular slice of, of people uh, at that time, and now going through a similar thing on this, with, is that how you would put it? Yeah, so referring to the 60s, the word gay had made its way into the New York Times, but it was banned in um, the mid-70s after there was an article about a uh, Queer Cruise, that is an actual boat with queer people on it, um, which had, uh, the article said, a sadomasochistic fashion show on it. When this happened, this is in 1975, the Times publisher, um, Arthur Salzberger's mother, called him horrified and said, this can't stand. Arthur Salzberger got to work, updated the style guide, and the, using the word gay was banned until 1987. Now, that's 12 years that somebody's mother, <laughs> somebody's mother's feelings dictated what was, um, you know, the tone set for the entire country, if not the world, um, for how to speak about people like me. You know, that's, and I was born in 1987, so, you know, sometimes one feels history moving through one's own life. And I think that this is just, you know, it's the issue of the issue of, of my lifetime, I think, in terms of changing of language. And so, Sabrina, last question. Do you think, coming out of that, <clears throat> that answer, that this is a matter of implicit bias? Um, the Jonathan Chadar article in New York Magazine argues that if upper management at the Times had any kind of transphobe agenda, it would run a wider swath of articles questioning things like whether people should be addressed by their pronouns of choice or that, you know, things like that. Um, so do you think this is um, very different in kind from some of the explicit right-wing media that is 
clearly trading on transphobia and trans hate uh, and that it's an implicit bias that you're trying to raise their consciousness on? Or how would you describe it in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I think implicit bias is a good term. And, you know, as you mentioned, Brian, there are shades of bias from things that people do that they don't intend to more overt right wing attacks. And, I, you know, I think this all goes back to this false sense that, you know, people that journalists can be objective and have no bias in their body. You know, we all have bias. I'm constantly trying to confront the bias that I have and um, you know, learn more to undo that in my own work. And I hope that upper management at the New York Times can listen to, you know, this this vast coalition of con contributors and freelancers, many of whom are trans and try to understand what we're saying um, and open their eyes to, to the idea that they might be harboring bias. Well, conversation engaged on what is legitimate journalism. Uh, on these particular matters that you single out in the letter and what kind of response um, the Times owes you substantively as well as on journalistic practices and professional practices. Uh, so we thank you both very much for coming on today, Sabrina Imbler and Joe Livingston, two journalists who have been New York Times contributors and our signatories to the letter that's been in the news. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having us, Brian. Thank you. And having this conversation with you on the radio, you know, it, it means a lot. It means a lot to me personally, and I'm sure to Sabrina a lot as well. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.